Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. And again, I want to say that this is, this is a message that is preparing a group of people called Trinity Assembly to be what God has called us to be. Okay, I believe that he has some great things in store for this ministry, for this church, for the people of this church. And I believe that as we move forward, we will see many of those things come to pass in our lives and it will be good. Amen. So Matthew chapter 16, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the day that you've given us, Lord. We pray over this word, Father, that the power of your Holy Spirit, God, will direct this word, Father, that will course it through our veins, Lord, that we get it in us, God, because, Lord, this is where you are moving us. You are not going to be satisfied, Father, with someone sitting back. But, Lord, you are only going to be satisfied with someone fulfilling the destiny that you have created them to fulfill. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, the title of my message is kind of weird. It's called Winning by Losing. Winning by Losing. It's a paradox. And the paradox that I'm speaking of this morning is the paradox of discipleship. And so this morning, if you look at disciple, excuse me, paradox in the dictionary, it says a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may be proved to be well-founded or true. So we've got this paradox that Jesus is fixing to speak into our lives this morning here in Matthew chapter 16. So let's look at, let's look at it. Matthew 16, verse 24. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his work. Now, this passage sets forth the the heart of Christian discipleship. And that's what this message is about this morning. It's becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. One of the things that we see in Jesus' ministry was, is he was bent on making disciples. Amen? I mean, he went around and he said, come follow me, come follow me, come follow me, come follow me. And he was he was up against the clock doing this. He had to train these disciples and ultimately release these disciples to change the known world for the gospel of Jesus Christ in just a matter of a few short years. Jesus was a disciple maker. Jesus is a disciple maker. One of the things that we have set forth in the goals and the vision of this church is that this church is a disciple maker. If you come to this church, let me just tell you what we're going to do. We're going to press on you from every direction we can possibly press on you so as that you would become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because I'll tell you, there is a big difference between being a church attender and a disciple. So this passage really sets forth the heart of Christian discipleship. And I tell you, it literally strikes a death blow to self-centered false gospels that are so popular in contemporary Christianity. Because, folks, there are some things out there that say, listen, you don't have to do anything. You just God's just going to bless you. He's going to bless you. He's going to bless you. That's all you're going to do is just sit and just be blessed. And i got to tell you something. That's hooey. That's, that's, not, that's not where it's at. 
You see, this, this scripture that we read leaves no room for the gospel of getting. Now, don't misunderstand me. God wants to bless us. God wants to give to us. But sometimes that seems like all we want is for Him to give to us. Sometimes I think we consider God kind of like this genie who jumps to and provides for every whim we have. And I have to tell you, whenever you look at the early disciples in the church of Jesus Christ as it formed in, you know, 2,000 years ago, you, you, you obviously have to agree that this gospel that's been preached sometimes in Western, uh, Western culture is a little bit different from the gospel that's preached in the Bible. Because God is not out to meet every whim that we have as a believer. I believe that this little discourse here that Jesus had between him and his followers in Matthew 16 really undermines the gospel of self-esteem. I mean, we teach folks that you've got to have self-esteem. Please don't misunderstand me. I think it's all right to believe in yourself. But I'm going to tell you, the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I want to tell you something. If you're good at anything, it's because God gifted you with that. You ain't good because you're good. So there's a gospel of self-esteem. There's a gospel of self-love. There's a gospel of high self-image. And that appeals to men's natural self. But it forgets about this spirit of humbleness and this spirit of brokenness. The spirit of repentance that literally marks the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, he's calling us to that kind of life. Jesus repeatedly, through his life here on this earth, makes it very clear that there must be a a cross before there is a crown. There has to be suffering before there's glory. And there has to be sacrifice before there is reward. The heart of Christian discipleship is giving before gaining. It's losing before winning. So that's where we get this. It's winning by losing. This paradox of discipleship. This was not the first time here in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus talked about the high cost of discipleship. In Matthew 10 it says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who has not take up a cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. In Mark 10 it says, he had told the, the rich young ruler this, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. The Greeks who asked Jesus Uh, asked to see Jesus, Jesus said to them, he said, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. You see, those teachings that Jesus taught literally ran contrary to popular Judaism of that time. I'm telling you, it wasn't popular. People are hearing this and they're going, I don't want to hear this. And this morning, I got to tell you, probably nobody's going to leave this room this morning and go, man, that message made me feel good. Woo, pastor just, woo, I'm just floating on cloud nine because this is not that kind of message. And whenever Jesus preached it back 2,000 years ago, it wasn't popular. 
And this message today is not popular in, 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 in Christianity here in the United States of America. You see, like, like most of the fellow Jews, these 12 that Jesus selected, one by one, come and follow me, they expected Jesus, the Messiah, to throw off this Roman yoke that had been placed around their neck and establish God's earthly kingdom here on earth. All of the glory that his kingdom is going to be. They expected it to happen. They expected Jesus to get it done. But it was really hard for them to reconcile this idea about Jesus teaching humility and Jesus teaching sacrifice and Jesus teaching self-giving. Whenever all of the disciples, they wanted to, they said, okay, Jesus, whenever you get, you know, promoted all the way up to chief, Who's going to sit on your right and left sides? <laughs> I want my sons, Jesus, to sit there. Y'all, y'all see how it was just so counter to them. They couldn't figure out why Jesus was teaching self-giving and sacrifice. Because, man, if you were the king or if you were one of the, the king's attendants, you, you, you had it made. You see, Jesus really didn't act like the Messiah that they expected. They knew Jesus' miracles. They knew His teachings. They couldn't explain them humanly. But yet, they still expected Him to be what they wanted Him to be. I think that they had truly come to believe that Jesus was Messiah. I mean, whenever Jesus asked Simon Peter, Who do you say I am? He said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right, Simon Bar-Jonah, but, but, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you. So you know God was, was doing something big in these guys' heart. The whole picture, though, for these men, for these followers of Jesus, it just didn't fit together for them. Man, if we're going to be kings and we're going to be rulers, why is Jesus living like he's living and talking like he's talking? Jesus repeated this, though, over and over and over in his ministry. He did it many times, and he did it in many forms. But you see, right after Peter got congratulated for saying, yep, you're right, I am the son of the living God, Peter all of a sudden made a turn, and he said, Jesus, come here. And he gave Jesus some instructions that he should have never given. And Jesus rebuked him. He said, get behind me, Satan. Youch. The reason that Jesus told him that is because Peter wasn't thinking like God. He was thinking like a man. And see, what we have is we have a culture that has just pressed on us and pressed on us and pressed on us to think like a man. And God says, nope, I want you to think like me. Discipleship is not exactly what the American church has been taught for many decades. So here's the principle. Jesus gives it to us. This is the the first verse we read. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. Why isn't there any amens right there? 
I forced it, though, Jesse. Yeah, I mean, I just look at that and I'm thinking, uh, I would rather do something else. Listen to what it says. Let him deny himself. And I just love to deny myself. Take up his cross. That sounds really nice. See, that's contrary to the modern day discipleship programs that are taught in many churches. Jesus says, listen, if you want to be one of my disciples, if you want, you've got to come after me, you've got to deny yourself, and you've got to take up your cross. You see, whenever Jesus said to disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, they were probably reminded of the time that he had called each and every one of them because that's what he did. Some two and a half years earlier, he had left. they had left their families, their friends, their occupations, everything else in order to follow Jesus. And now, Jesus again uses these words come after me come after me you see whenever jesus calls somebody and please don't please don't get this wrong because folks whenever i came to jesus christ almost 40 years ago he was the one calling me he was the one coming after me amen because the Bible says I was chosen, amen? Just like every Bible-believing believer is, is, they're chosen. We're chosen by God. And he, he, says, he says, come after me in that initial surrendering, that new birth that takes place. You see, whenever a person comes to Jesus Christ in salvation, there's something that happens. That old sinful life is exchanged for a new life of righteousness. There's a, there's a change, a, a trade that takes place. I taught this on Wednesday night to our youth, young people. We have to give God all of our junk, and He gives us righteousness and life and and amazing life at that whoa yeah that's a hallelujah but this is the one thing we got to do though if we want that righteousness of god we got to leave behind our old self so there's that initial surrender come after me i had to leave my old self behind whenever i was i was i was coming after jesus but there's also a second stage to this, and that's now I'm born again. Whenever I left the sanctuary that night and went out to my pickup in the parking lot, I was born again. And what I started right there was a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. I wasn't just coming after him with that 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 initial salvation experience at the altar, but now I'm coming after him with a lifestyle, with a life commitment that I will follow you, Jesus, all the days of my life. Let me just tell you, I would have never moved to North Carolina if I would have had my way. Never. First time I moved to North Carolina was in Winston-Salem. And just one month prior to moving to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, I told the senior pastor on the phone, I said, I don't ever want to move to North Carolina. It's the last place on earth I want to live. Seriously. I told God quite a few years ago, almost 24 years ago, that I did not want to be a senior pastor. I told him, I said, I don't even like senior pastors. I said, I don't, I'm not going to be a senior pastor, Lord. And then he reminded me of this, of this life that I've committed to live after. 
Come after me denotes this life of daily obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe it's, it's, it's sadly possible for a believer to lose that first love, that love where you've lost, you know, you've, you've left the old man behind and you're moving towards Jesus Christ. I think it's, it's, it's possible to lose that first love because there is this constant temptation to want to take back what was given up and reclaim what was forsaken. I can't tell you how many times I've went back to that old self and started acting like that old self. See, the other day, whenever I was mad at one of you all, no, it was another church I was at. I mean, are you all there with me? We, we just want to go back and pick up just one of those things because it was handy back whenever I was an unbeliever. It's especially tempting to compromise our commitment whenever the cost becomes too high. Disobedience does not alter the truth that the character of a true disciple is manifest in obedience. So just because we don't do it, just because probably the vast majority of the church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America does not do discipleship right, does not negate the idea that God has given us here that true discipleship is born out in obedience. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. We're either going to obey him on this side or we're going to obey him on that side. Are y'all understand what I'm saying? I mean, we, we got to choose where we're going to be obedient at. And right now, it's my free will to obey him. There will come a time for people to stand before Jesus Christ that they will not have a free will to obey him. They just will obey him. The Bible said every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. And that's not just those people who are loving on Jesus at that moment. That's every person is going to be brought out of the pit and stand before Jesus Christ and they will confess that He is God. Or an angel is going to give them a Dr. Spock hold on their shoulder. Okay, never mind. Discipleship is on God's terms. It's on his terms. We don't get to choose. Man, I'd like to. I'd like to take discipleship and rewrite so as it fits my schedule better. Can I just tell you something? If salvation was on God's terms, why would we think discipleship is not on his terms? We come to the Father through the Son. Are you all there with me? They're, they're, the, the formula for salvation in the Bible, it, it doesn't vacillate one way or another. It says there is one way, and that is Jesus. That's it. Very narrow-minded God we have. And so whenever we look at the way we come to Jesus through salvation, we have to understand that God's terms for discipleship is the same way. It's His terms. So the key to discipleship principle of winning by losing involves self-denial, it involves cross-bearing, and it involves loyal obedience. The first requirement of discipleship is denial. Everybody likes to deny yourself. Yes, 
That's why you're so looking forward to January whenever we get there. We're going to do a 21-day fast all over the church. We're going to ask everybody to participate in some way or another. And man, I know that all of you are excited about giving up food and giving up all kinds of stuff. It's just it's going to be great. And man, I can just see you all wiggling in your seats right now going, oh man, I just cannot wait till January. Denying ourselves. I mean, why would we be a people who are good at denying ourselves whenever everything around us says we can have it our way? Amen? We can have it our way. I mean, it's been, it's been programmed into us. Have it your way. Have it your way. And I believe with all my heart that because we have a generation that's coming up right now that honestly in their homes, they do not have a mother or father that says, listen, it's my way, not your way. You see, there's lack of discipline in homes today. And so often kids get their own way. In fact, many homes in America, kids are the ones who are running that home. That's why Bart Simpson and all that whole crew, you see the mother and father in that whole whole series makes the mother and father look like buffoons. Are you all there? And the kids are the ones with the brains running the outfit. Folks, that is a sampling of what our culture has become. So this is what I'm saying to you. If, if, if. We have a, if we have a culture that's, I mean, a people that's coming up behind us that doesn't want any other thing but having it their way, why would they bow their knee to Jesus Christ and the plan of discipleship that he has for their lives? That's why I'm saying to you parents, discipline your kids. Be the boss in your home. Amen. See, if a person is not willing to deny himself, he cannot claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Deny means to completely disown, to utterly separate oneself from someone. And it's the word that Jesus used to describe Peter's denial. Whenever he was being questioned by the high priest, this is what what happened. Each time that Peter was confronted, three different times, because remember Jesus is the one who said, you will deny me. Each time that Jesus, excuse me, Peter was confronted about his relationship with Jesus Christ, I mean, he vehemently denied. I don't have anything to do with it. I don't know him, never been with him. Are you all understand what I'm saying? I mean, think of what it would be like now if, if your own spouse would deny you. I don't know the man. Then under your breath, say, I wish I didn't know the man. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, what would it be like for you kids, for your parents to deny you? See, some of your kids look exactly like you, so you can't deny them. And some of your kids act exactly like you, Pastor Rick. (laughs) I'm not going to say who's smiling, but we know. I've got them too. I've got them too. Peter denied him. He disowned his master before the whole world. And that's exactly the kind of denial that a believer has to make in regard to himself. He is to utterly disown himself, to refuse to acknowledge the self or the old man. Jesus' words here could be paraphrased like this. Let him refuse any association, any companionship with himself. Deny yourself. Yourself becomes a non-issue. Your self is not important anymore. 
See, because we've got an I, an I mentality. It's about me. It's about I. I need this. I need that. Folks, whenever you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's not about you anymore. It's about others that are around you. Your life is here so as to serve others that are around you. And I have to tell you that Jesus gave the, the best example that we could ever have of that. Jesus said, I come, I come to lay my life down for the whole world. Why would he expect anything less of us? Self-denial not only characterizes a person when he comes in that saving faith to Jesus Christ, but also as he lives as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Self-denial. The self which Jesus is speaking of is the natural, sinful, the natural rebellious, the natural, unredeemed self that is at the center of every fallen person. See, I, I just I tell you, folks, we are a people that is we're too selfish. I knew a man one time that he really believed this. He believed that everything he had was God's. I mean everything. And I tell you, he had real loose fingers. If he thought somebody needed something, I'll tell you, man, he would give it to them in a heartbeat. Because it wasn't his wasn't his. I'm just going to tell y'all something. There's stuff at my house that's mine. And y'all leave it alone. I'm just letting that soak in because that's the way we are. That's that's mine. That that's mine. No, God put it in your hands so that you could bless others with it. That's discipleship. It is in your hands, not because it's yours. It's so that you can bless other people with it. To deny that self is to confess what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. To deny that to deny that self is to have a sincere, a very genuine conviction that one has nothing in your humanness at all that's worthwhile to offer Jesus Christ. See, that's we just got to come to a place where I'm just go I don't have nothing God. I don't have nothing. But I really would like for you to put something in me so I would have something to offer you. But there's a lot of people come to Jesus and go, I'm talented, man. I can sing. I can play. I can dance. I can do all of these various things. And they think that they in and of themselves are enough. But God looks at us completely different than the world looks at us. To deny oneself is to make no provisions for the flesh. My wife and I were surprised with our fourth child. And we had all the others almost raised. And uh, we took a trip in Montana from uh, our house to Great Falls, Montana, to go do something. I don't remember what we were doing. And we were so out of practice at being parents of a child that small that we did not pack anything in the diaper bag that should have been packed. No wipes, no change of clothes, just a diaper. Bad, bad day. 
We ended up having to go into a J.C. Penney store and buy all the stuff we needed to change him, get the wipes and all the stuff we needed because we had made no provision for him doing what he did in his diaper. See, we've we got to do that with ourselves. We've got to leave the house in the morning and say, man, there's no provision for you, self. You're not getting your way today. As I drive through this community, as I work in this community, as I go to school in this community, you don't get any provision. I didn't pack nothing for you. Everything I got is for people that are around me. See, I told you all we're going to be jumping up and down because of this message. We've got to deny ourselves. The second thing is this. I've got to move along quickly. Second requirement of discipleship is to take up one's cross. We don't have to deal with that anymore because we don't execute people on crosses. It's real hard to carry an electric chair, though. So we're going to go back to the cross and look at what it says. It says take up one's cross is not some mystical level of selflessness or deep spiritual life. It oftentimes is something that only religious elite people can achieve. Oh, man, look at the way they carry their cross. They're such a spiritual giant. Yes? You guys know what I'm talking about. Carrying our cross is not just the normal, everyday, common trials and hardships that everybody experiences. Like, Today, whenever I was putting on my shoes and stuff, I felt this little tinge in my back because I've been splitting wood. And man, some of them logs are ginormous and it's been moving around. And, and, and this is what I thought. I thought, man, I hope my back isn't hurting. But see, some of you that are really tender and kind-hearted, you go, well, pastor's back is just his cross to bear. Or maybe my wife's sickness is my cross to bear. That's not my cross to bear. Y'all understand that? That's just a trial. That's just a hardship I'm going through. A cross is not having an unsaved spouse or a nagging wife or, I don't know, a mean mother-in-law. You know, my mother-in-law is so mean. That's my cross to bear. Having a cross to bear is not having some type of physical handicap. It's not uh, some form of suffering from an incurable disease. You know, that person's got leprosy, and so that's their cross to bear. You see, to take up one's cross is simply to be willing to pay any price for Christ's sake. That's the cross. I To take up my cross is for me to be willing to say and do, Lord, anything for you. It's the willingness to endure shame, to endure embarrassment, to endure reproach or rejection or persecution, and even martyrdom for his sake. To to the people of Jesus' day, the cross was a very concrete and vivid reality. You see, whenever Jesus said the cross, I tell you, everybody that was standing around him knew what the cross was about. Because you see, the Romans used it as an instrument of execution. For Rome's worst enemies, this is what the cross was saved for. It was a symbol of torture. It was a symbol of death. It was, uh, it, it was, it was all of those things that, that for somebody would raise a hand against the Roman Empire, that's what you got was the cross. 
So let me just read this to you because I'll never get it right if I don't. Not many years before Jesus and the disciples came to Caesarea Philippi, a hundred men had been crucified in that area at one time. A century early, Alexander Janus had crucified 800 Jewish rebels at Jerusalem. And after the revolt that followed the death of Herod the Great, 2,000 Jews were crucified by the Roman uh, proconsul. Crucifixions on a smaller scale were a common sight, and it has been estimated that some 30,000 occurred under Roman authority during the lifetime of Jesus Christ. So whenever Jesus Christ says, take up your cross, people knew what he was talking about. See, whenever the disciples and the crowd heard Jesus speak of taking up their crowd, there wasn't anything mystical about the idea. They immediately pictured this poor guy, condemned soul, walking along a road, carrying, bearing this instrument of execution on his back. A man who took up his cross began his death march. The moment that that cross was slung across his shoulders, the death march began. Carrying that beam that he was literally about to be hung on. And so for a disciple of Jesus Christ to take up his cross is for him to be willing to start a death march. The moment that you are born again and you say yes to Jesus Christ and his salvation and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness... That's the moment that you begin to carry your cross. You begin the death march. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be willing in His service to suffer indignities, pain, and even death of a condemned criminal. Wow. I knew this was going to be easy preaching. You see, to come to Jesus is to come to the end of yourself. It is to come to the end of your sin. To become so desirous of Jesus Christ. To become so desirous of His righteousness. That you would make any sacrifice for it. I want you God. And I'll give up everything else for you. That's a disciple. A disciple's not somebody that says. God I want you. And I'm not really good at giving up stuff. So can I keep all of my stuff. And still come after you. That's not what a disciple is. You see the cross here represents suffering. And that suffering is ours. Because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ doesn't call his disciples to himself to make their lives easy. And to make their lives prosperous. But to make them holy and productive. So the willingness for you and I to take up our cross is the mark of true discipleship. But I have to tell you that there has been a no-cost relation, a, a no-cost preaching that has taken place in the United States of America, and people, because of that no-cost preaching, have become disciples by giving no cost. Didn't cost me anything. But I tell you this: that's a man-made option. It is not a Christ option. The third requirement of discipleship is loyal obedience. And all of us love this point because all of us love to obey. There shouldn't have been any amens there because I don't like to obey nobody except my wife. And I obey her right away 
I just salute her and do what she tells me to. She tells me you only do the things you want to do. But I say, no, ma'am, I do everything you tell me to. Loyal obedience. See, only after a person denies himself, takes up his cross, are you prepared to really follow Jesus. True discipleship is submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and that literally becomes a pattern for our life. I'm good at submitting to Jesus sometimes. But there are other times in my life where I'm not so good at it. As I told you earlier, there was a time whenever I told him I didn't want to be a senior pastor. There was a time whenever I told him I didn't want to move to North Carolina. Are you all there with me? All of us in this room have probably battled with this. You know, God tells us to do something and we just, we just don't want to do it. There have been times where I know I've missed out. The Holy Spirit speaking to my life to go pray for somebody, go minister to somebody. And I just didn't have time. I just didn't want to. But you see, whenever we begin to go after Jesus Christ and deny ourselves and take up our cross, that's where that obedience comes in. True discipleship is saying to Jesus, you are Lord and I obey my Lord. In 1 John 2, 6, listen to what it says here. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. And I suppose this morning you are here at church because you believe in this stuff. You believe in following Jesus. And so if you say you live in God, we should live our lives like Jesus Paul calls salvation in Romans chapter 1 verse 5. He calls it the obedience of faith. We do what he's told us to by faith. There's several things that happen whenever somebody is saved. They're very integral features of salvation. There's uh, the sacrificial saving work of the Son of God in our lives. There's this sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit sets out on right away. In other words, He's going he's to cause us to, through His initiatives in our life, He's going to cause us to be living right. But I have to tell you this. Obedience is an integral part of salvation as well. In other words, get up and do what God told you to do. I mean, you know, the very first thing that God spoke to me to do whenever I got saved, he, he spoke to me to read John 1 through 8. That was spoken to me through a young man that led me to the Lord. The second thing that he told me to do is he said, I want you to go out in your pickup. He said, I want you to take that beer. And he said, I want you to open every one of those bottles and pour it out on the driveway before you ever leave. I did it. I went out there. I didn't care who was parked next to me. I'm just. I had six of them. They were nice, cold, wonderful things. But God spoke to me and I had to do what he called me to do. That's the life of obedience that he has called us. And it is integral to our salvation. The Bible says in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, Jesus said, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Now, this is where we come to the paradox, and I'm going to move quickly through this. For whoever wishes to save his life, they're the ones that are going to lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man profit if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Life, soul, they're both synonymous with each other here. Self, it's all the same thing. All three of these words represent the inner you, the real you. And the Lord is saying that whoever lives only to save his earthly life, his physical life, whoever lives to save his ease and his comfort, whoever lives to be accepted by the world, they will lose the opportunity for eternal life. It's crazy. If you live for yourself, you will ultimately lose your life. But whoever is willing to give their life up, you see, just a few weeks ago, we had a missionary come, um, uh, the Smiths, and, and they ministered to us, but they're part of a group called Live Dead. It's Live Dead Africa. We had a group of young people from our church go to, to Turkey, and that is the Live Dead Silk Road. And all of these places all over the world today are, are finding young people one by one by one coming to this idea that they could actually live dead. That they're alive and they're breathing and they're, they're moving about, but to themselves. You see, they're leaving their lives. Daniel Smith is one. This is a young lady that could have all the things going for her. She is a sharp kid. She could be pursuing a, a degree and, 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 and finding herself with a doctorate in some way and being paid mega bucks, but she has chose to live the very modest of lifestyles and give herself to the people of Kyrgyzstan. A single young woman that says, All of my hopes, all of my dreams, they're gone because I am going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and the people of Kyrgyzstan. And one by one, these people are being called. And folks, that's that's the paradox here. If you give your life, you will have your life. But if you hang on to your life, you will lose your life. Whoever's willing to give up his life, the earthly stuff, the worldly stuff, suffered and died, you will find eternal life. Every person has a choice. Every person has a choice. To go for it now or to lose it later. That's it. He can forsake it now and gain it later. True discipleship. Jared, if you'll come and help me close this this morning. True discipleship is willing to pay whatever price faithfulness to the Lord requires. I can remember the very first car I ever paid off. Got the bank, the last payment, and the title was coming in the mail. And this is my thought process. I really am sad that my car is paid off because now God is going to ask me to give it to somebody. Just telling you. You know, a true disciple of Jesus Christ doesn't even think that way. A true disciple of Jesus Christ would be somebody that says, praise God. I got this dude paid off and now I can bless somebody else with this car. You guys go, oh, I'm, I'm just telling you, this is the way Jesus thinks. But we've been pressed on by this society that we live in and it's about us it's about us and it's about us and it's about hanging on to what we have so that we'll have it and god is saying no man let it all go he said if you let it go you'll have it one of these days 
And man, will you ever have it? You see, whatever the particulars are of a believer's cross-bearing, whatever it might be, it requires us to abandon, I mean to abandon our safety, our security, our personal resources. My youngest son is wanting to go down to Atlanta and work right in the middle of the hood and minister to people. And I'm just thinking, you know what? There are some people in the middle of the hood I really don't want around my kid. They have guns and drugs and knives. So I'm going to try to talk him out of it. Not. We should be ready to abandon our safety, our security, our personal resources, our friends, our jobs, and ultimately our lives. I came across a little story that really, I think, epitomizes so often a contrary to perhaps the way we think. Because we think, you know, we think that we're right sometimes and whenever the whole time we're not right. So I'm going to read this little story. It's about a plantation slave in the old south who was always happy, who was always singing. No matter what happened to him, his joy was always just abounding. One day his master came to him and he says, listen, slave. He said, what have you got that makes you so happy? The slave said, I have the Lord Jesus Christ. He's forgiven my sin and he has put a song in my heart. The slave master, he says, well, tell me this. How do I get what you have? The slave thought for a moment and he says, okay. He said, you go and you put on your Sunday best suit and you come down here and you work with me in the field in the middle of all of this mud and you can have it. Slave owner kind of made a huff and he goes, I would never do that. And very indignantly he rode off in a huff. Some weeks later, the master asked the same question and was given the same answer. A few weeks later, he came a third time and said, Now, be straight with me. What do I have to do to have what you have? The slave said, Just what I've told you the other times. So in desperation, the owner said, All right, I'll do it. I'll do it. Because I want what you have. And the slave looked at him and he says, Now you don't have to do it. You just had to be willing to do it. That's discipleship. Whenever you leave the house, you may think that you're going to be a martyr that day. More than likely you won't be. But you have to be willing to be. God, I'm laying down my life for you. For what will a man profit if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If you can imagine just for a moment Jesus saying what it would be like for somebody to possess the whole world. I mean, if you owned it all. If every person in this room right now was paying you rent. Y'all there? 
What would it be like for somebody to own the whole world? What good would it be if you lost your whole soul? Even if you owned everything, there's going to come a time in your life where it means nothing. I've had the opportunity and the privilege of being with a lot of people as they passed on from this life to the next. And never once have I ever heard anybody talking about possessions. Not once. Oh, I sure am glad I got that old Cadillac in the garage. Not one time have I ever heard that. You know what they talk about? They talk about their families. They talk about their Savior. And the possessions of this world mean nothing to them. That's where we've got to come. Of what lasting benefit would it be if gaining the whole world you forfeited your soul? 